Salty Thoughts with Tamal Dodge. Today we sit down with Sean Korn. She is an activist, yogi, and one of those rare and truly inspirational people. Thank you for being here, Sean. Thank you. <laughs> so uh, let's talk a little bit about your upbringing, how you came to yoga, or how you discovered yoga. Sure. Um, let's see. I was raised in a very non-religious household. I was raised um, culturally. I'm both Jewish and Catholic. And, but my parents really re- rejected any idea of religion. And so I was raised agnostic um, with a, a lean towards atheism. Um, but because I wasn't really taught about spirituality or about God, a lot of the information that I picked up was from my school, was from my friends and their parents. And so my understanding of God or spirituality at that time was very patriarchal. And it seemed as if spirit only showed up when you messed up. It's my cat. <laughs> she has something to say. Yeah. She's the worst meow ever. <laughs> she sounds demonic. Come up here. Come up here. And uh, so I had a real negative feeling around God and spirituality. And so the older I got, the more that I rejected any notion of God. And by the time I was 17 years old, I would have absolutely... Um, defined myself as someone who was atheist and I moved to New York City when I was 17 so this was back in the mid 80s and um, just as fate would have had it I got a job at a place called Life Cafe which was on the corner of 10th and Avenue B in the East Village Mm. and Life Cafe was owned by David Life and Sharon Gannon was one of uh, the waitresses there Um, and David and Sharon as I hope everyone who's listening knows went on to open up the Jiva Mukti Yoga Centers um, Eddie Stern, who went on to open the Ashtanga Yoga Shala, was a delivery boy at Life Cafe at that time. And so there was uh, a lot of talk about yoga and veganism and spirituality that was happening at that time. And there was also a real split in that cafe. Either you were doing yoga or you were doing drugs. And <laughs> there was a lot of drugs happening uh, in the 80s in the Lower East Side of New York City. Heroin and cocaine and hallucinogenics, you name it, it was available. Crack was really on the rise. And um, a lot of my friends were doing drugs. I was doing drugs. And um, But when David and Sharon in 1986 went to India, I remember they came back. And there was something about David especially that... I, I, I noticed a shift in him. Um, he was always a kind, generous, thoughtful, and compassionate man, but there was something else that happened. And uh, a level of mindfulness that I hadn't really seen or witnessed before, and it made me intrigued. And it was really through David and the influence of Life Cafe that I got into yoga, and eventually, because of the practice of yoga, stopped uh, drinking and doing drugs and acting out in all sorts of ways and uh, opened me up to developing a more inclusive understanding of what God is and what God is to me, which is love. 
and I was able to end that patriarchal idea of it and reclaim spirituality in a way that made sense. Mm. There was a lot of energy going on in that cafe. <laughs> oh <laughs> yes, very karmic at that time. You know, I, at the time you can't know that. You know, it's like I just was working there. Now, in retrospect, I can look back and see how what a phenomenal time that was, and how blessed I was at mm. such a young age and at such an impressionable age to have been introduced to yoga at at really 19 years old, and to be so deeply influenced by these amazing people. Yeah, and it's just really wild how so many people in that one spot went out to put their mark in helping change the world all yeah. in one spot, one location. It's a lot of a lot of um, inspirational things happening and sure. people feeding off of energy. Well, even more so, uh, uh, Dana Trixie Flynn, do you mm-hmm. know who that is from Laughing Lotus? Yeah. And uh, her sister Kimberly Flynn, who is, uh, is also an Ashtanga teacher, they were customers there back in the day. <laughs> Vinnie Marino uh, worked down the street, um, was that at Mogador or Dojo? I think at Dojo. Uh, I didn't know him then, but he was a customer at Left Cafe. Julie Kleinman, who runs the teacher's training program at Yoga Works, uh, was also a customer at Left Cafe wow. during the 80s. I mean, there's a lot. A I could lot. go on and on. There's a lot of people that I know today that I'm associated with who came in and out of that cafe during that time. Well, and it's wild because it's like everybody's still somewhat connected to, to each other just yes. because of the things you are all engaged in still mm-hmm. that's really wild that's interesting um so i know you're saying that that was your first introduction into changing your dietary habits and your introduction into yoga what was the next stages or steps for you actually becoming a yoga teacher or deciding to you know get certified or even inspired to tell anybody about yoga or how to do an mm-hmm. up dog or how to change their life or anything that took years i mean i like I said, I practiced, started practicing yoga at 19, but it was very physical for me. It wasn't a spiritual practice at all. I just, I had a lot of anxiety as a kid. I had, it wouldn't have been diagnosed as obsessive compulsive disorder when I was that age because that really didn't, that terminology didn't really exist. But when I was around 9, 10, I developed these quirks uh, of, that's what they were called, where I had to do things in patterns of fours and eights. Mm. Um, if someone touched me on one shoulder, I needed them to touch me on the other shoulder. If I tripped into something, I'd have to trip on the other side. You'd have to tell me you love me four times. I'd have to blink a certain amount of times, count stairs, count cracks. It went on and on and on. And But it was because I had anxiety and I was using the patterning as a way to self-regulate my nervous system. At that young age, I didn't have access to drugs and alcohol and other kinds of behavior. So that other people might use to anesthetize or numb Mm. themselves out from their own tension. I had counting, patterning. And when I was in one of my earlier yoga classes, I remember being a downward dog and the yoga teacher uh, walked by me and accidentally stepped on my right foot. And all this anxiety came up for me because I felt out of balance. My body just shifted and I didn't feel right. And I started to obsess about how I was going to be able to get him to step on my other foot. And I remember when um, I kept thinking, well, maybe when the class is over, uh, when I go to say goodbye to him and hug him, I can trip. And I was constantly tripping on people. Mm. They thought I was the biggest klutz, but it was to manipulate my way into figuring out how to create this balance. And uh, the teacher, I remember saying just randomly, breathe and everything changes. And so I took a really deep breath and nothing changed. 
actually the anxiety got worse. And my anxiety was very attached to superstition, meaning that if I didn't do the patternings, I was, uh, I would be, the anxiety was around people dying um, or something happened that I couldn't control. It also goes back to this idea of playing God as someone who was raised an agnostic or an atheist. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize there was uh, kind of a divine design. And so it's all connected. So the teacher says, breathe and everything changes. Uh, again, I take another breath, nothing changes, the anxiety gets worse. Worse. I take another breath, uh, it continues to get worse. And I don't know if it was the third, fourth, tenth breath, but there's a moment where it, something in my body shifted and my body relaxed and the sensation, the anxiety went away and I was able to leave the, um, let me indulge my cat here for a moment. She never comes out like this, by the way. This is very unusual that she wants to hang out with you guys. She's like, you guys are doing a podcast. I want to get in yes. on this thing. I uh -huh. need more attention. This is her love spot is up on here. But she would never do this in front of people. So you must have good energy. So um, like I said, I was able to leave the yoga studio and not do this patterning. And uh, I thought that that was really odd. The next day when I le left my apartment, I lived on Avenue B between 12th and 13th, and there was 56 steps between my fourth floor apartment and you know the lobby. And I every day I counted those steps, and then I'd have to do it four times, check my lock. And even though I knew it was locked, it was just, again, part of the ritual. I count my 56 steps, and I turn around to go back up the stairs, and I stop. I sit on the bottom step, and I breathe and breathe and breathe. And like I said, the anxiety got worse before it got better, right. but it got better. And I was able to leave my apartment. And as a result of this, I was able to heal myself from these addictive patternings um, through the practice of yoga. I just felt better. So the practice to me was very physical. It was not spiritual. I felt better by breathing and by just moving the energy in my body. Um, I didn't feel as stressed. And it also made me then not want to use the substances that I was using, because that was another way I was self-regulating. I stopped drinking, I stopped smoking pot, I stopped doing hallucinogenics, I stopped doing all the drugs that I was doing, stopped acting out sexually, I stopped stealing. I was a big stealer. We all were, everyone was skimming off the top. In New York City at that time, it's the only way you made a living. <laughs> so, but at one point it was wrong. I yeah. just, it just was so clear that that wasn't healthy. I stopped eating meat. Um, but none of it was with any spiritual intention. It was just to feel better. Um, I moved to New York. Um, from New York, I moved to L.A., I think around 92 or something like that, and got into yoga here. Very different yoga scene here than in New York. Completely different experience. In New York, it was very passionate and flowing, expressive. Here in L.A., it was very methodical. Um, everything was in alignment. Precision was key. And... Uh, for someone who has obsessive compulsive disorder, I really enjoyed that right. because that precision brought my body really into balance. Um, but again, my practice was physical. It never occurred to me that I was going to teach yoga. Never. Uh, it was around in 1994 that I had an emotional experience in, maybe a little earlier than that, an emotional experience in a yoga class. I had seen people get emotional. It never happened for me. I never expected it to happen. I would look at the people crying in class and think like, you know, just get it together. You know, <laughs> breathe. And I had also worked with a Zen Buddhist therapist to try to understand a little bit more about my anxiety. And one of the things that this 
therapist had taught me was when a big feeling comes up to detach. What I learned later through the practice of yoga that detachment without awareness is disassociation. So I learned very early on how to intellectualize um, my experiences and bypass the emotions. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't until I have this experience in a yoga class where I'm in a pose, pigeon pose, teachers prattling on about whatever, love, and I, uh, (laughs) uh, all this emotion came up in my body. And nothing was wrong. Everything was fine in my life. It was just energy. And I had to leave the room. I was so freaked out. And I cried in the bathroom. This was at Yoga Works in Montana. There was only one Yoga Works at that time. And my body was shaking, which I learned later, of course, was just this discharge of old, old energy, old trauma. Body is shaking. I'm crying. And then I went back into the yoga room. And by this time, everyone's on the other side, you know, doing the other pose, um, pigeon on the other side. And I got into the pose very tentatively because I was kind of freaked out. And I heard everything that the teacher said completely differently. Now, I know that this teacher had been saying this stuff for years, the same dialogue. I shifted. Something released in my body so profoundly that I was able to connect to my vulnerability. And the moment I did that, I heard what he was saying, not from my head, but really from my heart. And that was a transformational moment for me as a student it wasn't until uh, maybe maybe just a few months later, I'm on a hike with the very same teacher, Brian Kest, uh, who was also my boyfriend at this particular time. And we're on a hike, and Brian turns to me and says, there's no one in the world I'd rather see teach power yoga than you. And I remember saying to him, like, oh, my God, I can never be a teacher. You know, I'd only been practicing at this point for, you know, eight years. Right. And I'm thinking, you've, you've had to be practicing yoga, you know, your whole life. You have to be immersed in this. I've only just recently reclaimed God, you know, as a possibility. Right. And um, so I, you know, I just negated the conversation. The <laughs> next morning, I, I'm working behind the desk. I was a receptionist at YogaWorks. Um, it's how I got free classes. Uh, I couldn't afford classes at that time. And so by being a receptionist, it gave me access to everything. So right. I took every class known to man. And my boss was a woman by the name of Matias Rati, who would eventually become, she was the owner of Yoga Works and would eventually become my mentor. And so it's the very next day and out of nowhere, Mati says to me, she goes, I think you would be an amazing yoga teacher. I think you should take the teacher's training. And again, I was just telling her, no, I could never do it. And... But I was aware that in less than 24 hours, two people that I really loved and um, trusted were both telling me that I was going to be an amazing yoga teacher. The thing is, though, the only evidence either one of them had of me being an amazing yoga teacher was the fact that I was strong and flexible. But that's not what a yoga teacher is. And what they didn't know about me is that I had anxiety around speaking publicly, that I could be really charming and charismatic as long as there was only maybe five people, but if I had to speak directly to large groups of people, um, because of my dissociation, I get very dizzy, I have vertigo, things get black around the periphery, I lose my train of thought. And this was something I kept very, very well hidden because I'm an outgoing personality, but only in environments I can control. So they didn't know this about me. I knew, though, that (laughs) I had this fear. So I didn't tell this to Mati, and Mati said, don't even think about the teacher's training as becoming a teacher. Do it just to advance your own practice. So the teacher's training was $600 at that time, and it was with Eric Schiffman, and it was a 200-hour training, but I couldn't afford the $600. 
I hadn't taken money from my parents since I left home and I called them up and I told them about this training and I really wanted to do it and my parents said you know your birthday's coming up why don't you let us give this to you for your birthday present so I agreed and you know to this day my parents say it's the best check they ever wrote in their life and they wish they could have framed it um, but they couldn't have known that until years later right because my first teacher's training was a nightmare <laughs> it was a nightmare it was like um, my only way that I can relate to it it was like um, being in high school my experience with algebra is that if you miss information on one day you're never going to catch up the next day. <laughs> right. And that's how it felt. I didn't understand. It was like the bone under the index finger goes where? And then what happens with the shoulders? It was all very mathematical to my mind. And I couldn't catch up. And uh, that's not the way my brain works. I'm a very circular thinker. And this is very linear. And um, I was very overwhelmed. What I also didn't know, which I should have known, is that when you're in a teacher's training, you actually have to teach. <laughs> and I managed to get through my entire teacher's training without ever getting in front of, I never, uh, I never taught in front of the class. I never broke up into groups of four. I never did it one-on-one. -on -one. I made myself utterly invisible um, for the however long, six weeks. <laughs> and I, I kept waiting for someone to notice that I was the only one who didn't do it. And, um, but I managed to get through that teacher's training, never taught uh, uh, in front of anybody because that's how afraid I was. I also remember Eric Schiffman saying to me, a yoga teacher is someone so filled with yoga that it overflows. And I had a feeling that was me. I, when I'd be behind the desk and people would come in and ask me questions about yoga, when it was one-on-one, -on -one, it would pour out of me. It's just that I had this real block about um, speaking in front of groups of people. So I, a part of me wanted it, but another part of me was really terrified also I did not have the confidence that how I felt about this practice, which was really deep and profound, still is. I never felt that I would have the words to adequately articulate and put words to my experience. And I felt that the moment I even tried, it would minimize its magic and its power. And I would never want to do that to another person. And that was another reason why I kept myself really closed off from my self-expression and I don't know that I must have some sort of a mental block about all of this because I don't remember the time lapse but somehow after I graduated my 200 hour training I ended up in an advanced Iyengar teachers training don't ask me how <laughs> and there was only 12 people in this training it was by invite only Lisa Walford was leading it mm. and I managed to get through that entire training without actually training what? everybody Without ever teaching, yes. Um, on paper, I was pretty good, but I... That's like a miracle to be able to do that. I'm telling you, it's like, I don't know how it happened, but I, I take some sort of weird pride in this because it's very strange. <laughs> but then there's a final exam. Yeah. And the final exam, uh, I am up all night. I am terrified because I know I have to teach now. Mati's coming in to watch. And Mati um, has high hopes for me. I know she does. She thinks I'm going to be an amazing teacher. And this is the first time in all these months of me training, she's now going to witness this debacle. And I remember we were, at that time, the way we were taught is that the, in the Iyengar way, the, the mats are parallel to the front of the room. And you have to go to the front of the room and mirror what it is you're saying, mm. which is very difficult. And for the people listening, mirroring is when you say one thing and your body reflects the opposite. 
it's hard. And yeah. if you've never done it before, it's, it's, it's not impossible, but it's, it's fairly unbearable. And uh, we're all in Tadasana. And in my mind, I'm praying, please, God, don't let it be Parsvakanasana. Uh, anything but Parsvakanasana. For whatever reason, I had this real mental block around Parsvakanasana, which is extended side angle. And, uh, and sure enough, Lisa says, Sean, will you come up and teach Parsvakanasana? And I remember just thinking, fuck, fuck, like as I'm crossing the room. Uh, so I get to the front of the room and I stand on the front of the mat. You know, I look at everybody. They're looking at me. I take I say, uh, take a deep breath in. Exhale, spread your legs five and a half feet apart. Um, turn your right foot out as I turn my left foot out. Uh, arms out to the sides. Take another deep breath in. Exhale, bend your uh, right knee as I bend my left knee. Take another deep breath in, exhale. And as I said, exhale and lean forward, it's. <laughs> sorry about the cat here. No, it's totally fine. Yes. As I went to put my hand on the floor, I froze. And it wasn't as if I just lost the ability to express what came next. There were no words. I'm standing, I'm staring at my hand, I'm staring at the floor. I'm very well aware something needs to be said to get those two points to connect. I just don't know what they are. I froze, my worst nightmare. What I knew would happen, froze. Everything gets black on the side, I get a little dizzy, completely lose my ability to communicate. So I stand up, straighten my leg, I apologize. I say, you know, can I try again? She says, of course. Arms out to the sides, turn your right foot out as I turn my left, take another deep breath in, bend the knee, take another deep breath in, exhale, same thing happens. I lean forward, try to put my hand on the floor, forget what to say, turn beat red. I can see my friends out there on the mat, like pointing to their hand, mouthing, put your hand on the floor, and I'm just frozen. I stand back up, um, I go to say something to my teacher, Lisa, and my voice cracks. And she says, oh, Sean, you're nervous. And I feel the tears come because I'm really embarrassed. Right. Um, and, and then the next words changed my life. I looked at her and I said, Lisa, can I do something different? And I remember her shrugging and saying, sure. And I stepped off the mat and I entered into the space. And the moment I stepped off that mat and immersed myself in the experience the words came flowing out of me like water bend that knee take a deep breath in put your hand on the floor exhale reach the arm out over your ear it just flowed and i realized even in that moment i needed to be a part of the experience i couldn't be separate from it and that it was so embodied the way my yoga practice is embodied and I knew in that moment I was going to be a teacher. I didn't know I was going to be a good teacher. That took time and a lot of practice and a lot of mentorship and training. But I knew I was going to be able to communicate as long as I did it in a way that made me equal within that experience, not separate then. And after that, I trained my tail off. And I did um, five 200-hour teacher's trainings back-to-back. Wow. Because um, the first one, I retained zero um the second 15 percent third 30 percent by the time i got to my fifth fifth one i felt confident my brain just didn't work that way it just i had to experience it over and over for it to land in my body 
But simultaneously to doing the teacher's trainings, I was already teaching. I started teaching at Yoga Works, first in other small studios locally, gyms and things like that. Then eventually I started teaching at Yoga Works, but I never stopped training. Um, my career happened very quickly. There was a real uh, vinyasa flow yoga hit the mainstream in a big way, meaning that a lot of people who were into athletics, working out, the gyms, suddenly were coming to the <coughs> yoga class in a way they never had before. And I was teaching vinyasa and power yoga simultaneous to this wave. So that would have been in 1994, 95. And so it's like I had to think on my feet. I had to train simultaneous to teaching. It all happened very quickly. Yeah, that's, that's a crazy story. It's like I look at all the components, even from your journey from New York to Los Angeles. Everything seems very serendipitous and mm -hmm. almost, um, almost like some kind of wild psychedelic spiritual <laughs> master plan somebody had for you. One would think. <laughs> right? <laughs> like the people so. you land with at specific times to take you to different points... It's, it's pretty wild. It's never ended. It's still that way for me. Yeah. Like, I'm very in on the, the joke, so to speak. Yeah. I'm very aware that certain teachers will show up in my life at a very specific time, and I know to pay attention. It's always been that way, and I, don't th I can't imagine it'll end. I've never, um, I've never really bought into the hype of my role as a yoga teacher in the community because I am a student and have been very committed to my studentship for a long time. The success I've had as a yoga teacher is, uh, is amazing, it's incredible, and I'm beyond grateful. And it's a huge test, and it's a, um, a constant uh, challenge not to buy the hype and not to be seduced by the projection because it really can get in the way of your own studentship. If I don't feel good about myself, all I have to do is book a class because I'm gonna have 10, 15, 100,000 yeah. people telling me I'm amazing. And it's very seductive and it's very ego-driven. And that's not my destiny. So as uh, grateful as I am for the success, I'm also very aware to pay attention to the hype and not to be defined by it and to constantly be doing my work and surrounding myself with people who are more skilled and experienced than I am to help initiate me into the next levels of my own spiritual development. Yeah, I always feel it's important to surround yourself with people who check your reality. Yes. And uh, it's funny, I always tell in my teacher training to students that you should always have the mind that you're a student. And if you do that, you'll learn and educate yourself over your entire life so that the best class you ever teach should be the last class you ever teach because mm. it should reflect a lifetime of study. Absolutely. And and I'm also a big believer that the, you know this practice is very creative. What I know now is very different than what I knew a decade ago. What I'll know a decade from now will be much more, I hope, mature than what I'm offering today because I will have grown and changed. So the practice of yoga and being a yoga teacher is a very creative experience. Creativity is subjective. My creativity is going to be very dependent upon my age, my sexuality, my religion, my ancestry, culture, etc. And none of these are absolutes. So the more in which I evolve, the more that evolution influences perception. But my perception is going to be different from someone else's. And so if I impose my, my, my interpretation onto someone, including my students, as an absolute, what I'm do doing is denying them their own creative experience around spirit. So I look at art and yoga as being one and the same, as something that is evolutionary, it is creative, it is subjective, it is subject to change, and it's something that has to be discovered. So as a teacher, I can offer you a glimpse into my self-discovery 
uh, and I hope it informs or even colors someone else's perspective. But I would never want someone to adopt it as an absolute truth because they're giving away their own power and they're giving away their own relationship with the divine, which is always evolutionary. The next question I had for you was, how did your inspiration to become active in changing the world um, off the mat and being able to make big impacts on individual lives in other countries, people here in the States and abroad. How did that kind of unfold in your yoga practice or maybe outside of your yoga practice, just in your own heart and your own mind? Sure. Um, Well, that that question has a a lot of different channels within (laughs) that because um, I've always had issues around injustice Um, ever since I was very young. um, I was, uh, I was Probably in school, the one that would often mediate conflicts. I came from a, girl, a school where there was a lot of girl fights and things like that, and people coming in from other towns because you know someone made out with their boyfriend and there'd be a fight. And I was very quick to mediate. Um, and I, I avoided myself, completely avoided ever getting into a fight because I could talk myself out of anything. But I would get outraged when I saw bullying being done or um, anything that was being done to hurt or harm another person. Animals came a little uh, later, my awareness uh, around meeting, eating, but it's all related. Um, so I always had big issues around injustice. When I moved to New York City, I was an activist. Or, um, I started working as a frontline activist for organizations like ACT UP, which was an HIV AIDS um, awareness organization, um, Women's Action Coalition, which was a radical feminist organization as well as the National Organization for Women around pro, uh, pro-choice. And, but I was an intense activist. I was a screamer, a rager. Um, I was always against something. And when I would go to a rally, which I loved more than anything in the world, I would feel amazing when it was done. But then a day, two days later, I would get anxious and want another rally and eventually burnt out. Now, what I realized years later is that when you go into environments that are high energy and you're screaming and raging, you're actually discharging energy. So I was discharging my fear, my rage, my anger, all that stuff temporarily. I wasn't processing it, I wasn't understanding it, but I was rinsing it. And so I burnt out as most activists do because they're not working on themselves. And did got into yoga, did my thing, life just happened. Um, and then in the 90s, I decided to uh, reinvest myself in doing service work because I'm now becoming a success in the yoga community, um, making money that I'd never made before. And my interest in getting involved in activism wasn't um, generous. It wasn't coming from a selfless place. It was actually quite cavalier in retrospect because my only interest in giving back was because I didn't want to stop the flow of abundance. I believe when abundance comes in, you give out, you have to give it back equally to keep the energy flowing. I didn't want to stop abundance. So I thought, well, you know, the only skill I have is yoga. I can teach yoga. I, I have an affinity towards young people between the ages of like 11 and 17. I'm pretty good in that age group. Horrible when they're really young, but really pretty good at this one age. So I did some research, found out about uh, an organization called Children of the Night in Van Nuys, which um, houses and rehabilitates, um, provides protection, education, and support for young people who have been seriously seriously sexually abused uh, through sex trafficking. 
Very often they call them adolescent prostitutes, um, but I really loathe that terminology. These are children who have been trafficked. And so I, I decided to go and teach yoga to them. And, you know, I had this idea in my head that this was going to be a great experience and they're going to love the yoga and, you know, it'll be a little love fest. It was horrible. Right. It was the worst hour. The I walked in, there were 15 children, uh, 13 girls, two um, young boys. Very early on in their rehabilitation, you know, angry, <clears throat> defiant, rude, confrontational, really unimpressed with me. Uh, <laughs> and... Uh, weren't listening, you know, it was just, it was just a really bad experience and I couldn't wait for it to be over. And when it was over, I ran to my car and I, all this rage came up in my body, all this rage. And with that rage came all this judgment and oddly very projected toward the, towards these young people and the system. And I am just spinning out, projecting like crazy. And I, suddenly I stopped and cried so hard because I realized something so quickly, and this really changed the way in which I, from that point forward, I approached service and activism. I realized that I had just walked into a room and met 15 examples of my disowned self. The parts of me, my shadow self, that I thought I had healed, but because I had been taught detachment, I had just buried. I'm angry, I'm defiant, I had issues with authority. All these things that I could not stand about these kids, I did what I had been doing for years. I ran and judged. And I thought, oh my God, oh my, like I just was very well aware that I think my yoga has just begun. I have to go back. And if I can give these kids some skills, great, but I'm pretty sure they might have a key to my healing and a different level of identification I didn't even know. I was in the inquiry. I went back the next week, very freaked out, a little bit humbled. Not a little bit, a lot humbled. And I related to the children and the young people in a different way. I uh, shared more about myself, asked appropriate questions, and in time developed relationships with these children where I was able to recognize that it wasn't their rage that terrified me. It was their grief. And, and it was because no one had taught me how to be okay with my own vulnerability. No one had taught me how to, with that, that feeling of injustice, the rage I had, it wasn't rage, it was deep sadness. Mm. And when I learned to love their sadness, I loved it. It helped me to reclaim that part of myself and integrate those different aspects. Not deny them or separate myself from them, but be in relationship. Right. My shadow was going to inform my light. In the same way, it allowed me to see these children as holding so much light, so much wisdom, so much power. Um, and to fully be of service to those young people, I had to see that equal to the other parts of them. And that was the way in which I changed my relationship to service. I started doing a lot of work in the community. Um, I started teaching around the country classes called spiritual activism and trying to get people to be aware of the power that they had to actually create change and to step into purpose. I started to recognize that my own career was really blowing up and the truth was is that I wasn't that much better than anybody else. Um, but there were certain privileges that I had at that time that other people were never going to get. 
And those privileges are the fact that I was marketable, that yoga was becoming uh, commercialized, commodified, people were capitalizing on it, and they needed someone who was a decent spokesperson, but even more than that, they needed someone that was, uh, that fit into some sort of a normalized, standardized sense of beauty that people could relate to. And at that time, I was in my early 20s, mid-20s, white, thin, strong, ethnically neutral. And what I mean by that is that, I mean, I'm white, so obviously I'm ethnicity, but even in my whiteness, you can't, I'm not an Irish white, I'm not Eastern European white. I live in this weird little spectrum that's very neutral. And I was getting opportunities that no one was getting, covers of magazines, um, covers of books, uh, articles. And I, and I knew why. I wanted to earn it. I worked hard to become the teacher that deserved that attention, but I also knew it was this other stuff. And so it was really when I did my first series of DVDs and the attention just escalated. And I thought, I see where this is going. I'm going to be a success. I'm going to make money. I'm going to get a lot of attention. This doesn't feel right. What can I do at, that, at this crossroad, at this, at this threshold, to redirect the attention off of me and onto things that are actually important? And that was when, really, when I started to put some energy into my activism, using the platform that I had to raise awareness around global health issues at that time, um, trying to empower other people to step into leadership, especially teachers who had their own platform. And the more I did that, the more success I was having around that. I was seeing that the yoga community was ready for this conversation. and it felt right in my body to use the platform in that way to inspire people to want to create change. Um, and then from there off the mat into the world was born and it was born out of a collaboration because I was, I remember teaching spiritual activism workshops. People were inspired, excited on a Sunday. I would get on a plane and feel depressed because I knew by Wednesday they would feel isolated and alone. There was no structure to help move them into the now what. And I needed a now what? I needed an organized arm. And, but I didn't want to do it alone. I, I didn't have the resources and I certainly didn't have the skills. And that's when I started to really pay attention to the idea of collaboration. And uh, worked with Hala Corey and Suzanne Sterling to create Off mm -hmm. the Mat Into the World and model what shared power looks like, shared skill sets look like, and started doing trainings to be able to bridge the gap between yoga and social justice and, act, and act, um, purpose and activism, and then do projects, giving people opportunities to raise money, raise awareness, learn things around social justice and cultural sensitivities. And over the years, Off The Mat has trained thousands of leaders. We have a small circle model around the country, around the world actually, where we train leaders, they go back to their community, they then train people, right. and so we have hundreds of these small circles around the country. We've uh, done projects in eight countries. Uh, uh, I think at this point, it's over 23 very sustainable projects. We've worked with different organizations overseas, raised upwards to $4 million uh, wow. in order to do these projects. Um, and it's, I'm really proud of the work we've done, and I'm very happy that 
I was able to use the, the authority that I do have in the yoga community, the trust that people have given to me, in order to raise this kind of awareness, both on a national level, in terms of uh, issues of social justice, as well as raising awareness around issues of uh, politics and systemic change. Wow. There's that uh, Muhammad Ali quote. He says, service to others is the rent you pay for your room here on earth. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And you know, and it's, uh, it's privilege. You know, I, I live in a very, I'm in a pri privileged position. Even yoga, the fact that we get to, the fact that we get to have this conversation right now, the fact that we get to talk every single day in a yoga class about truth and God and love and be in the inquiry, this is a privilege. Most people in the world, because of political um, and religious oppression, because of s systemic dominance, would literally be killed or jailed doing what we take for granted every single day. Right. And I'm very aware of this privilege, and a part of me, like, there's no apology in me. I, I got the brass ring, that's how I feel, but how dare I not use it well? Right. And how dare I not take accountability for the ways in which, because of my privilege, I actually benefit from the oppression of others. And as a person of privilege, I know in my soul that if, if I don't look at issues of racism, sexism, genderism, homophobia, transphobia, then I'm part of the problem and I'm not really a practicing yogi. Because yogi, to me, forces you to have to look at the shadow and everything, take accountability for your participation in that shadow, don't deny the shadow, but take ownership of it to integrate it so that you can transcend it and also be able to identify it when it actually shows up. Um, yoga invites you into being hyper aware of who you are as a human being and how we perceive the world through that particular lens and how the world perceives us. To separate ourselves from that, those notions, separates um, ourselves from each other. And so, you know, I'm deeply committed to being in that inquiry and hopefully encouraging other people, especially in the yoga community, to be willing to look at their own privilege, be in these uncomfortable conversations, because if we can, and if we can elicit change from the inside out, peace is its inevitable outcome. Yeah, I mean, I always look at it that our life here is just like a flash, you know? And not only is our life just like a flash, these bodies are all temporary, mm -hmm. you know? It's just a shell. Yes. And, you know, I, I, I apply the pillars that are actually in the yoga system and the yoga sutras of we are a soul and everyone is a soul and we're all equal because mm -hmm. we're all spiritual beings. You know, mm -hmm. if you have that kind of respect for people that goes beyond the body, yeah. you got to be able to take that with you and yes. be able to share that. You know, it's uh, interesting how when the subject of becoming active about something, it makes people uncomfortable, mm -hmm. very uncomfortable because one, it requires something of you mm -hmm. and because it requires something of you, there's work to be done. Not only is there work to be done, but usually when something is an issue in the world, you know that you're going to be met with some kind of resistance yeah. on the other end. So, you know, my father used to tell me as a kid that if you're comfortable, you're not progressing. Mm-hmm, yeah. Because if you're, you know, sedentary, chilling out, always feeling good, whatever it is, sitting on my couch, you're not moving forward. But right. if you doing, whether it's a physical pose, whether I'm d trying to do a handstand mm -hmm. and I suck at it and mm -hmm. then I'm, it's tough, it's rough, but eventually the more and more I do it, I start to make progress. Yeah when it comes down to service and making change, whether that's, you know, applying it to 
helping animals or sex trafficking or a myriad of different things that we were talking about today, mm-hmm. um, if you start to become aware that, yes, it's going to make you uncomfortable, but through that discomfort, you're going to make other people more comfortable. And yes. the reward and the satisfaction of helping others is where it's all at. Well, my, the work that we do with Off the Mat is, um, in our trainings, the first few days deals with uh, what happens is, is what we learn in yoga is there's no separation between the mind and the body and that everything we think, feel, or experience has an effect on our cellular tissue. When we've experienced trauma, chemicals are released through the body, it puts us in fight, flight, or freeze, our body contracts, and there's now a physiological imprint. If we've given, been given space as a child to process the, the trauma, the rage, the fear, the grief, whatever it is, we discharge that energy. But unfortunately, a lot of us aren't taught that as children. We're taught to suppress. That suppressed energy becomes the tension or anxiety that we experience. And what then happens is that we get into uncomfortable situations as adults and we get triggered. People say or do something. My body goes into that fight, flight, or freeze, and I time travel to the original insult or assault. I'm no longer in present time. So my words are going to reflect this old um, experience and this is why confrontation is so, and also activism is often so ineffective because people aren't able to recognize I'm triggered, I'm in my trauma, I'm time traveling, I need to breathe, I need to ground, I need to resource before I open my mouth and say another word because odds are I'm going to create more problems as a result of my reactivity. And so it's an important part of the training is to be able to identify on a physiological level, on an embodied level, the sensation around reactivity and be able to identify it as, as a sensation and move the energy through quickly so that our communication can be really mindful and grounded. I can't control what someone else might do, but I can control the words that come out of my mouth that means that later I might have to process. I may have to go back and cry and rage and scream and discharge the energy. But if I'm not aware of these triggers or if I suppress them, I'm just going to make myself sick mm. and create more harm. And so a big part of my activism is all about sustainability. And my six non-negotiables of sustainability are yoga, meditation, prayer, diet, sleep, and therapy. If any of those six things are off, then I know that in conflict, I will go back to that eight-year-old self and I will rage, I will get aggressive, I will be confrontational. And I know the end result of that mm. is going to be more opposition and then my activism is ineffective. And so I'm looking for a new model of activism where you can actually be present um, to someone else, even if they are, um, uh, their the views are different and never lose my compassion, never lose my love, uh, and never lose my mindfulness. And in most realms I can do that. The only realm I can't do that is around animal rights. I'm very reactive. Mm -hmm. Um, I get highly triggered. It's not a good realm for me to be an activist. My activism around animal rights is much more subtle. Um, It's personal. And I fund people who do great frontline work, but I can't do frontline work myself because of my trauma. Mm It's a sensitive subject for me too, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and get carried away with it. You know, it's one of those things though with any kind of activism. Though, you know, I've met friends who are saying, "Well, it sounds like you're judgmental of people," and I say, "It's not judgmental about anything in activism, whether that's animal rights, human rights, whatever it is." Um, I'm a firm believer that you must say 
the truth, even if it's uncomfortable for people, if something is wrong. Yeah. It's different between judging somebody. Mm-hmm. You know, you could be judging somebody for smoking a cigarette down the street. That's ridiculous. You know, but if you see somebody like beating their child or do something yes. or abusing their dog or whatever, you have to say something. Otherwise, mm-hmm. it's on you. Right. It's karmically even on you because mm-hmm. you're ignoring, you're putting yourself in ignorance of something that's actually happening yeah. because you don't want to have that confrontation. And so, you're complicit yeah. from that point on. You become complicit. part of it. Yeah. Um, we're kind of running out of time. <laughs> I could talk with you all day long. Um, but can you tell us where people may find uh, more about your organization sure. or how to get involved? Off the mat into the world.org is where you can find out about our trainings and the different projects that we're doing um, and other information on, about myself and uh, all the other faculty. Uh, we have a lot of online trainings that includes um, the faculty talking about anything from race issue to transgender issues, um, trying to highlight people in the community who are doing extraordinary work who are way more skilled um, about uh, those issues than myself, Holler, or Suzanne are. So our faculty is pretty broad and we make the trainings very accessible um, for people uh, uh, financially. Uh, there's dr- justice pricing and so you pay what you can. Uh, and uh, our trainings are like that as well in terms of um, scholarships. And there's different levels of trainings that have, are available. They can get in touch with me through seancorn.com to find out more about what I do. Um, both within, off the mat, as well as independently. Awesome. Is there any final thoughts that you'd like to share with anybody? Yes. I'm hoping that everyone who's listening gets out there and votes. Um, If they want to understand more about the intersection between wellness, uh, mindfulness, and politics, they should go to citizenswell.org. And um, I think it's very important right now as yogis that we vote our values, that we recognize that there are a lot of us uh, practicing yoga, in the United States and if we organize together we are no longer just a community but we are a constituency and that politicians might not necessarily care about our values but they do care about our vote and if we were um, demanding things like no GMOs if we were demanding things around healthcare education uh, we could actually impact policy on a huge huge level and that we cannot nor should we minimize our power or our civic right and so I hope everyone who's listening, if, if, it's, ap- if it's applicable to you this November, uh, get out there and vote. Vote your values and be a part of the system of change. Awesome. You know, I always think of that Gandhi quote, change starts with one. Yes. So mm-hmm. on that note, thank you guys for listening. Thank you, Sean. You're very welcome. Thank Na- you. Namaste, everybody. Namaste.